Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you so much for loving us. Thank you, Father, that here in the Christmas season, we're thinking about that. Father, thank you that when we hear from you that you love us, that that love is, is big enough and meaningful enough that it can powerfully change and control us. Lord, I pray today that we would rest and trust in your love for us seen in Jesus coming to save us from our sins. Lord, according to your word today, help us grow in that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you would, turn in the Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, that would be page 1091, 1091. If you did not bring a Bible with you and you want to use the Black Pew Bible there, page 1091, 1 Timothy chapter 3. This will be the third week in a row, third week in a row now that we are looking at the idea of elders leading the church, multiple, plural uh, elders. Elders, as we've said many times now, are the same thing as pastors. The Bible uses the word elders leading the church. It's my heart and prayer that our church would move in that direction, and so we want to uh, look to what the Bible says. Uh, I will say to you all, we've had a lot of great discussion on Wednesday nights and in and out of small group Bible studies over the past couple weeks. There have been many, many, many good questions. Uh, we are not talking about any huge change. I will still be your uh, preaching pastor like this. We are just looking to bring on uh, more people that will be elders. I also will say that this is the last sermon that we're going to talk about this on a Sunday morning. All right? And from here, the conversation would go uh, to just the ground level and see what questions you have. Maybe more discussion on a Wednesday night here very soon. In the Christmas story, which I hope, I hope, I hope that you have been reviewing over the past couple weeks, especially uh, beginning last Sunday as that officially began the Advent season, Christmas is here. I hope that you have not been running wild for presents and for Christmas decorations and for get-togethers and for parties, and yet not considered that Jesus is the reason for the season. And so, while we are all truly busy and have a lot going on, I pray that we are looking to Christ, that we are considering that this entire holiday is because he came to us, because God came to us. And so if you've been reviewing those good stories or you've been reading them with your children or grandchildren, um, then you remember in Matthew's account that Joseph is told they will call him Jesus. His name will be Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. This is the grand purpose behind Jesus coming to earth. Christmas is about a savior. Christmas is about Jesus coming to save his people from their sins. Now, you all know that, I'm sure you've heard that. 
But if you start to really spend some time thinking or asking some questions or really trying to sort that out, then before long and not very long, before not very long at all, you are wondering, okay, what about this and what about that? For instance, he will save his people from their sins. Well, we're pretty clear on the he. That's Jesus, right? And he would come and live and never sin and then be crucified, killed, put to death, right? That's what he did. But he will save his people from their sins. Who are his people? And how do we understand who that is? And what are our sins? And how do we understand what those are? If we have not come to understand what a person of God is or what a person of God looks like or how one becomes a person of God, then we have no way of embracing the one who came to save his people from their sins. If we've not come to understand what our sins are and what makes a sin and what makes not a sin and what uh, qualifies as a sin and what is not regarded as sin, if we don't know what sin is and we just try to dismiss dismiss it uh, basically with, well, nobody's perfect and, hey, we all make mistakes and we're all flawed, if we cannot identify what sins are, then how are we to repent or turn away from those things and trust? Trust in him that has been offended by our sin for forgiveness. And if we cannot understand what our sins are, then we most certainly are not going to love and embrace the one who came to save us from our sins. These are basic Christmas categories, right? You will call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Surely you've read that so many times in your life, especially around this holiday. But it means something, and how do we figure out what it means? How do we figure out who he is and how he died? Now, again, that's probably the easiest for you all this morning, right? That's Jesus dying on the cross. But how do we figure out who his people are, and how do we figure out what their sins are that he's going to save us from? Well, the Bible teaches us that too. The Bible teaches us that God has given people the the calling and responsibility to lead the people. We call this the church, and we call this leaders in the church. That's what the whole New Testament is speaking to and describing. The witness to the gospel of Jesus belongs to the church. And the witness of the church is led, not anything over-the-top domineering, not any type of power play, but the witness of the church is led by elders in the church. And so, if we want to take serious, he will save his people from their sins, then we want to take serious how we communicate those things. And as soon as we ask, how are we communicating those things, now we're getting into, okay, well, what's the church like? Imagine a church you've been to before, this church or any other church. And imagine that you're not a part of it anymore, or imagine that uh, somebody who used to be a part of this church that is no longer a part of this church. And then I start to think about, wonder what they tell people about Jesus. I don't really know, 
but surely it's not accurate. For if somebody doesn't want to follow Christ faithfully, then there's somewhere, something, somehow uh, not accurate, not correct in wanting to follow him. For Jesus is a savior. And anybody that comes to know him wants to follow him. Well, how do we point that out? How do we communicate that? Well, we do that as a church, as we look to the word of God that communicates this. And the church goes often as the leaders or elders of the church take it. That's what leadership is. That's what church leadership is. That's what shepherding is. You see this very clearly in 1 Timothy. Look with me at 1 Timothy. We're going to start reading in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a letter from Paul to Timothy. It's an awesome letter. Paul says in verse 3, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Paul, knowing that this sinful world that that, that is made up of sinful people that needs to be saved by the Savior Jesus who came to us at Christmas time to die on the cross, Paul, knowing that that's the world we live in, no matter where you find yourself living and functioning, Paul, knowing that's the way it is, understands the huge importance, the dire need for there to be leaders in the churches teaching the word of God faithfully. So he leaves Timothy in Ephesus to do this very thing. The stewardship from God that is by faith, he says. Verse 5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Look at verse 6. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Paul knows already in the very limited experience of the early church, right? We're not even really a full century deep into this church age with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit following the the teachings of Christ and the apostles. It's just getting started, and it's already pretty messy. That's why one of the reasons, listen to me, that people like me and people like you do not give up on church and do not quit church and not stop attending church because it's messy and because we know messy people and because our lives are messy, we don't, is because it's always going to be that way until we get to heaven. People like me and people like you have messy lives. There are days, there are moments in our lives where we are not as we ought to be. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are to admit that, confess that, repent of that, turn to God for that, and seek restoration and reconciliation and keep striving together. Paul here, early on again, in this first century, after Jesus is describing that things are bad. You've got bad teachers. You've got bad believers. You've got people who aren't believers thinking they're believers. You've got people who have wandered away. And so now he's telling Timothy that 
the, the church and the leaders of the church need to lead well in this time. Verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers. And look at this. And whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. The Bible teaches us that when Jesus came to save his people from their sins, that that would happen. That business or enterprise or that ministry that the world is in right now of people being saved from their sins would come about as people hear clearly and accurately what God is like, who he is, what he's done, how he feels about us, how he treats us, how he responds to who we are. As we faithfully communicate the accurate, truthful message of God, God, by his power, uses it to change hearts. I am certain of this. I have seen that happen time and time again. As the church faithfully communicates who God is and what he's like, specifically in the person and work of Jesus, who he is, what he's done, God powerfully changes hearts to believe that. This is the ministry that we're doing. It's what we're supposed to be doing. It's what all of us are supposed to be involved with. But... As Paul is saying here to Timothy, when we are unfaithful to that, we create more of a mess and people are not being saved. People are not growing and coming to know and trust and love Jesus. So this matters. It matters so very much how we do this. It matters so very much how healthy we are as a church. It matters so very much how healthy every church is. Because we are seeking to communicate the message to the world that Jesus saves sinners. But who is saved? And from what sins is all that comes in when it says sound doctrine, healthy teaching? Let's keep going. Verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Notice that Paul is totally okay with his past, with his shameful, awful, evil past. He's okay with that. He's not proud of it, but he can admit it. He can write it to a younger guy that he's uh, mentoring because in all of our sinfulness... Christ is exalted as a savior. Even we see this with the apostle Paul. Verse 13, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Now look at this verse. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save Sinners. 
of whom I am the foremost. Paul sees himself as the first and worst sinner of all. He never once thinks of himself as better than anybody else. In many ways, the Apostle Paul is our hero, perhaps the best guy in the New Testament apart from Jesus. And yet, he boasts about how bad he was and how far from God he was, calling himself the foremost of sinners. But the reason why he's able to do that is because of what he just said before, this saying is trustworthy. It is deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Here we have Paul, almost a century later, stating almost the exact same thing that we have announced by the angel at the birth of Christ. You will call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Later, you remember Jesus in his ministry saying, I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call the sick. You remember him saying, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus is a savior. Jesus saves people. Jesus is looking for sinners who will turn to him and say, I need you, God. I need help, God. I need forgiveness. I need mercy. I need you, And when one turns to him, he accepts them. Look at verse 16. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. He's talking about how one can come to faith in Christ and have their life changed, starting on the inside and then growing to the outside. Verse 17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Verse 18, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. How Timothy represents, lives out, teaches, and proclaims the gospel of Jesus seems to make all the difference in the world with who gets saved. Do you follow that? Paul speaks of people who have wandered away from that. He speaks of people who have totally made shipwreck of that. And he places almost a healthy pressure on Timothy to pass the baton, carry the torch, bear the responsibility to be one who longs to see people changed by Jesus. Paul knows that he has been changed by Jesus, and we see his testimony in the verses we just read. We know that Timothy has been saved by Jesus, and we have mention of that throughout the New Testament. You remember his mother and grandmother, Lois and Eunice, being very influential in his life to raise him up to be a faithful follower of God. And now we have him here, left in Ephesus by Paul, to be one who stands in the way, teaching those to proclaim the gospel faithfully. 
it should be a great desire and prayer and burden of all of us that we want our church to faithfully proclaim Jesus. Every given week, we have hundreds of people in and around our church that do not attend our church. Every given week. On Fridays, there's a Bible study here that's not connected to our church. About 30 people, we let them use our building on a Friday, right? Just come here to have a Bible study. On Wednesdays, we have a Dare to Care food pantry that feeds so many people. We're up now to like 40 to 50, 60 households here every Wednesday to get an entire grocery cart of groceries. It's a big ministry. There's a lot going on there. Often throughout the week, we have programs from the schools, sports teams coming down, and we feed them pregame meals. Just this past week, we had 20 from the girls' basketball program at Fairdale High School down here in our church. Not to mention the countless people that just come and go in and out to do different things. There are lots of people. In saying that, if somebody was to ask them, what do you think church is? What is church like? And if you know it's about Jesus, then what do you think about Jesus? What are God's people like? What are church people like? Surely you've all heard the stories before of people that work in restaurants and wait tables and how much they hate to have to work on Sundays because on Sundays the church crowd comes. How faithful are you at communicating the gospel of Jesus? Are there people in your life who are very far from God and they have no hint of it because you've not given even a hint to it? This is what the church is to be concerned about. Are we communicating Jesus well, faithfully? So Paul writes to Timothy telling this, telling him this. In chapter 2, he gets to encouraging Timothy to pray. You have that great verse in verse 5 that says, there is, this is chapter 2, verse 5, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Then you get down to chapter 3, and Paul is telling Timothy now the qualifications for an elder, for an overseer, for a pastor, for a bishop. We've told you this many times. Those four words are all uh, synonymous in the New Testament. They all basically refer to the pastor-shepherd. We want to use, to keep it consistent, the word elder or elders. But we have here a list of the qualifications If you'll notice, it's verses 1 through 7, and then you look at verse 8, look at verse 8, 8 through 13 is the qualification for deacons. Now for deacons, this is the only place in the Bible where it has qualifications for deacons. This is the only place. We seem to have a descriptive example of what deacons are like and how they're separate from those doing ministry in the book of Acts. It doesn't say they're deacons, but it sure seems that that's what those people are or are becoming. It is a group raised up to assist in 
certain matters so that the elders can do more of what they do. You don't have those terms in the book of Acts, but it seems like that's what it's describing. But beyond that, right here in 1 Timothy 3, 8 and following, is the only place for the qualifications of deacons. If you've ever thought about deacons before, if you know our deacons, or if you want to know if we have good deacons, read that passage and understand what the qualifications are. But 1 through 7 are the qualifications for elders. This is not the only place that we have that. This is the only place for deacons, but not for elders. Josh Womble came up and read our reading in the middle of the service from Titus chapter 1. And in Titus chapter 1, you also have there the qualifications for elders. And so we look at both of those passages side by side. That's why I have us reading both of those today. So for the rest of our time, I want us to look at 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. For the qualifications of elders. Because in the coming weeks... I want to ask all of you to give me your input on who do you think, in and around all of us, sounds like this. We're not talking about what they're going to get paid. We're talking about those that will oversee all of us and the witness of our church and the discipleship in your lives, helping you grow stronger in your faith in Jesus. So let's read 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, and then in the back of your minds, I want you to be thinking about who comes to mind. 1 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 1, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. I don't know if you've ever read or studied that passage before, but it's pretty serious, is it not? Sounds heavy just reading it. It's awkward knowing that In our church setup right now, I seem to be the lone elder in our church. And with that type of a setup, it seems awkward for me to read this, meaning that all of you are thinking about, am I that? There's pressure there. But for the sake of Jesus, the church needs men who are that to lead us. I'm going to give you three ideas around this to think about. Number one... The man aspires or desires this position. Did you read that there at the beginning? Do not miss this. This is a huge part of it. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires 
a noble task. In the very mention of it, in verse 1, you have aspires and desires. And in some ways, we use these interchangeably, but they're a little bit different. The first one, aspires, seems to speak to what you want on the inside and internally. And the second one, desires, seems to speak to what you want uh, on the outside externally. Are there people in the world who aspire and desire to go into the ministry? Absolutely. Southern Baptists alone have six major seminaries, and one of them is Southern Seminary right here in Louisville, where I went and graduated. I was there from 2003 to 2006. You don't have to go to seminary to be in the ministry. It's just more education to help you move in that direction. I was able to go to school after college, grad school, and study at Southern Seminary, and I'm so glad I did. There's a really, really good, strong seminary in North Carolina right where I'm from, but had I not heard of Southern Seminary and come here, I would have never found Fairdale. Who knows how my life would have been different all the way together, so I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that I was here. But this seminary alone, just this one, and it's just one of the six Southern Baptist ones, not to mention all the others that aren't Southern Baptist. This one alone has some three or 4,000 people attending it who have a desire to do ministry. There are lots of people that desire to do ministry. Now, what's beautiful about the, the kingdom of God and the, the church, the universal church, is that inside of a church, there aren't a lot of people, right? I made the comment last week, and I'll say it again. If I was to feel sick right now, and I was to say, hey, hey, can you come up here and and preach for me? The huge majority of you are going to go, no way, why don't we just cancel? But there are a few, there are a few people here today that would say, I'll step up there. Now, this is a desire to do ministry. This morning when I walked into prayer time, early this morning at 9 o'clock, we gathered to meet here, and I walked into prayer time. I was sneezing like crazy, and I don't know why I was sneezing. And somebody said, well, man, are you getting allergies? Are you starting to feel sick or what? I said, no, I think I'm just sneezing. And somebody spoke up and said, you need me to preach for you? Hoping that I would say, sure, like I don't want to. I said, no, I think I'll be okay. But there are people that desire to. And so the first part of considering who should be an elder is who thinks that they have this calling in life. Who wants it? Who wants to take on your life and situation? Who wants to care for you? Now, it is a burden, and I preached on that last week. Remember last week's message? Eagerly, willingly, exemplary, wanting to shepherd the flock and exercise oversight. That was last week from 1 Peter 5. You remember that, some of you. But notice that that's just the beginning of this. Just because you want to do ministry or consider doing ministry or just because you think you can do ministry doesn't mean that you can go into the ministry. Now, in this day and age, it probably means you can go into the ministry somewhere in some capacity doing something, and nobody else thinks you can, but you're going to, right? But the first aspect is he aspires and desires it. Let me tell you my story. When I graduated high school, I loved working on the golf course. That's what I did since the time I turned 16. I worked on the golf course. I spread dirt and mowed grass and planted grass seed and did stuff like that, and I loved it. It was a great job for me. And so when I graduated high school, my parents made me pick a major. That's what I chose. I started college majoring in golf turf grass management. That's an awesome major, isn't it? 
Most people have never even heard of that. Golf turf grass management. That was my major. I loved it. It was awesome. And it pays really well if I'd ever gotten there, but I didn't. But I was in college for that. But when I got to college, I started really growing in the Lord. God was working in my life. I was seeking out relationships that helped me become a stronger believer. I was growing into a man of God. And it wasn't long into my college years. It was actually my second year of college that I came to the realization, I think God is not just growing me. I think God is calling me into the ministry. I didn't know what that meant. I had never had anything like that in my life. I had never had any mentors or examples in my life that I've seen that happen before. I just started thinking, I think God wants me to do ministry. So I asked the preacher at my home church, because I wasn't at my home church, I asked the preacher at my home church, how should I handle this? What should I do? And he said, well, here's what you should do. The next time you're at church, you should come forward in church and tell the church you think God's calling you into ministry. And then he said, moving forward, we need to see you keep growing, and we need to see if we think God is calling you into the ministry. That's my second point. The first one, he aspires and desires it. But the second one is the church sees it, and the church recognizes it. Look what happens next in the passage, verse 2. Therefore, so if he desires it, if he aspires it, Well, then now all of this stuff's in play. An overseer must be above reproach. That means when somebody thinks of that person, they don't think of all these negatives. That guy, I mean, he lies like crazy. That guy, he's an arrogant jerk, right? If any types of those negatives or critiques or blemishes come to mind immediately, if that's that person's character or nature or personality, then they're not qualified. That's what it means to be above reproach. The second is the husband of one wife. This one has been very controversial throughout the years. Husband of one wife means this. A one-woman man. Okay? A one-woman man. That's what that literally means. A one-woman man. It means without any question at all, you know that person is clearly committed. Emotionally, uh, intimately, sexually, clearly committed to that one person, and there are no issues there. That's what it means. This is not speaking necessarily to marriage, or this is not necessarily speaking even to divorce. This means that they are clearly a one-woman man. That's what this means. Next, sober-minded, level-headed, not wishy-washy, not out of their mind, not drunk, not acting like they're that way, self-controlled. Seems to me that many people these days struggle with control. Control is difficult. We can't control ourselves. We can't control our mouths. We can't control our desires and our lusts. We can't control our spending. We can't control our gossip, our slander. We can't control our time management. We can't control our screen time on our phone management. A life that is out of control is not one that is exemplary to lead the people of God. It is a fruit of the Spirit that God, by the power of His Holy Spirit, brings control into a believer's life. Self-control. Next, respectable. People respect this person. 
They may not necessarily agree with him. One does, people don't have to agree, but they respect him. Hospitable. What an awesome trait one must have to be considered a pastor, shepherd, elder. Hospitable. It gives the idea of kind and warm-heartedness toward people. It gives the idea of caring, wanting to help, opening up their life, even perhaps their home, or opening up their family. Hospitable. Able to teach. Now let me stop right there for a second. Does everybody see able to teach? This is the and really only the only difference between an elder and a deacon. If you read the list coming right after this, it sounds like they're a man of God, but it does not have teaching in it. Now certainly, somebody qualified to be an elder could be a deacon. Deacons can teach, but they don't have to be able to teach. But when it comes to being an elder, they must have the gift of teaching. They must have the heart and calling to be a teacher. They must know what the Bible says so that they can teach it. You've seen this through and through. As you see, that's why I read chapter 1, because Paul is wanting to put this burden on Timothy that we are talking about souls. We're talking about people's eternity. We're talking about heaven or hell. We're talking about are they saved from their sins? Are they believing in Jesus? Are they repenting of their sins? We're talking about teaching these truths accurately from the Word of God. If one does not know how to do that, if they don't know their Bible, if they don't read the Bible, love the Bible, study the Bible, if they don't desire to communicate the Bible into your lives, then how in the world are they going to do the work of an elder? In the Titus passage that covers the same subject, listen to how it ends. He must hold, this is Titus 1.9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. The elder has to do that type of work. As we interact in your lives and disciple you and help you deal with what life is bringing, that ability to teach must be there. It goes on, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle. Elders must have a gentleness about them. Again, this is a characteristic of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Not quarrelsome. They cannot be hot-headed or quick-tempered. They cannot be one who likes to argue or likes to get in fights or likes to uh, upset people. Not quarrelsome. Not a lover of money. We saw this again in 1 Peter chapter 5. I'll read it to you again. It's what I preached on last time. Remember the willingly? Remember that? Willingly, eagerly, exemplary. And here's what it says there. It says in 1 Peter 5, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but Eagerly, I'm not trying to do this for money, I'm not trying to do this to get rich, I'm not a lover of money. And then it gets more practical than that. It says, then next, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? That's harsh. That's strong that is severe 
In many, many, many professions in the world, your personal lives don't apply, right? It's actually pretty common for a professional to have two phone numbers, two different types of conversations going on in their lives. It's pretty common for a professional to have two social medias, right? They've got their personal Facebook and they've got their work Facebook or they've got their, they've got their personal Instagram and then they've got whatever position they have Instagram. And sometimes if you compare the two, they're quite a bit different, if we're honest. When it comes to those that lead the church, there can be no double life. Who we are this morning ought to be who we were last night. Who we are on the good days needs to be who we are on the bad days. Notice that the personal life of the elder matters. The church is to consider who leads them to trust in Jesus based off not what they see in this setting, but based off of what they see in every other setting. That's serious. Why? Because God doesn't want us to be performers not the leaders, not the church, not the individuals. God wants our hearts. God wants us to love him and to trust him. And if one does not lead his own household well, how does he think he's going to lead the church well? He literally asks that question. Then he says he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. So in other words, there is a real sense, okay? There's a real sense that experience, maturity, age are to be taken into consideration. Now, doesn't mean that somebody young can't be an elder. It means it needs to be taken into consideration, You'll remember that that very saying there, not be a recent convert, you remember that that's speaking to their conversion. How long have they been a believer? How long have they been walking with the Lord? How long have they been involved in the church? How long have they been serving the church, right? It's speaking to experience and maturity and those sorts of things. And you also will remember that it is in this same book, at chapter 4, verse 12, if you look there, where Paul tells Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth. But set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. So Paul knows that Timothy's young. And Paul knows that there may be people saying, hey, he seems to be a little bit young. And Paul says, don't let them look down on you of that. I see you as exemplary. Set the example. I have said often to our church that I need y'all to bear with me. I'm 38 years old now, and believe me, my hair is turning gray. But I started in this role when I was 29, not even yet 30. And so I need grace and mercy and understanding and patience from you all. I need you truly to grow and strive with me. But as a church, now looking at elders, we need to take in consideration that they're not young or immature in their faith. For one would quickly become distracted with arrogance or personal issues or fall into the condemnation of the devil. And then lastly, he says this, Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. 
This at times is almost the hardest one to read. I know the family is a really hard one. This one means their reputation means something. Talk to their coworkers outside of this place. Talk to their neighbors. Talk to those they run into at the gas station or Dairy Queen. Or talk to those that know them outside of all things religious. What do they think of them? Their reputation matters. Again, it doesn't mean they need to agree with them. But it does mean that they have a respect for them. That they are kind and gentle. That they love their neighbor. That they do unto others as they would have them do unto themselves. And that right there is the wrap-up of the qualifications of an elder. That's it. Doesn't say much, does it? Really, it just lays before us, they need to be a serious, committed Christian. There's nothing in there about education, nothing in there about seminary, nothing at all. Just that we see them as one that would be a good leader to our church. Listen to John MacArthur. He says, God's standards for believers are high. Believers, not elders. His standards for believers are high. God's standards for you are high. His requirement for church leaders is to set that standard and model it. Such leaders are not qualified on the basis of natural ability, intelligence, or education, but on the basis of moral and spiritual character and the ability to teach with skill as the Spirit sovereignly has equipped them. So the first thing is, who aspires and desires to it? The second thing is, the church sees it or recognizes it. As we look around, who are those people? And if you see people that you think, hey, I think they'd be great at that, and they say, no, I don't think I have the calling, well, then they're not going to be an elder of our church. Or if somebody steps up and says, hey, man, that's me. I mean, that sounds just like me there. I can't imagine anybody here saying that, but hey, that sounds like me. And you say, I don't think so. Well, then that's not either. And remember, we're a congregational church, so the elders don't get to make the decisions. We vote on everything here. We all together get to make these decisions. So we need to be observing. Who do we think this is? Number one, he aspires and desires to it. Number two, the church sees it and recognizes it. And then lastly, number three, this is to strengthen the witness of the church. This is to strengthen the witness of the church. Just a few verses later, after the deacons, look at verse 14, and we'll end here. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is Jesus who came to us to save his people from their sins. And to the extent that we, me, you, us, we, faithfully proclaim the gospel, we help people find life and salvation in Jesus. It's a matter that we ought to be taken serious. 
It truly is the whole reason God has us here. That to his glory and for his glory, we would see more and more people come to know Jesus. Our church's mission statement is that we exist to proclaim Jesus. Or the first half of it is that. We exist to proclaim Jesus. It is our desire. I heard a man pray this morning that if anybody shows up today that doesn't already know Jesus, that they would believe on him today. That's what the church wants to see happen. But it doesn't happen automatically. And it doesn't happen from unfaithfulness. And it doesn't happen when we preach wrong or explain wrong. It doesn't happen when we live disobediently. It happens when God uses his faithful people according to his word. And so may God so graciously help our church think more and more about our faithful witness. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus... Would you believe on him? This Christmas season, would you remember that he came to save his people from their sins? And that when he died on the cross, it was for your sins. And if you would turn to him, he would. We want to help you find life in Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us to be faithful to you. God, we don't want to go through motions and we don't want to just show up. We want to be used for people to know Jesus. God, help us to identify those who aspire and desire to be an elder. Help us to identify whether they possess the qualifications and help us to keep it all in perspective as this helping people come to know Jesus. Father, if anyone's here that does not, Give them faith. Lead them to believe now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.